Section 19 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lehman. Chapter 12, Part 3. Speech on the Presidency and General Politics, delivered in the House, July 27, 1848. Mr. Speaker, our Democratic friends seem to be in great distress, because they think our candidate for the Presidency don't suit us. Most of them cannot find out that General Taylor has any principles at all. Some, however, have discovered that he has one, but that that one is entirely wrong. This one principle is his position on the veto power. The gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Stanton, who has just taken his seat, indeed, has said there is very little, if any, difference on this question between General Taylor and all the presidents, and he seems to think it sufficient distraction from General Taylor's position on it, that it has nothing new in it. But all others whom I have heard speak assail it furiously. A new member from Kentucky, Mr. Clark, of very considerable ability, was in particular concern about it. He thought it altogether novel and unprecedented for a president, or a presidential candidate, to think of approving bills whose constitutionality may not be entirely clear to his own mind. He thinks the arc of our safety is gone, unless presidents shall always veto such bills as, in their judgment, may be of doubtful constitutionality. However clear Congress may be of their authority to pass any particular act, the gentleman from Kentucky thinks the president must veto it if he has doubts about it. Now, I have neither time nor inclination to argue with the gentleman on the veto power as an original question, but I wish to show that General Taylor, and not he, agrees with the earliest statesman on this question. When the bill chartering the First Bank of the United States passed Congress, its constitutionality was questioned. Mr. Madison, then in the House of Representatives, as well as others, had deposed it on that ground. General Washington, as President, was called on to approve or reject it. He sought and obtained, on the constitutional question, the separate written opinions of Jefferson, Hamilton, and Edmund Randolph, they then being respectively Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, and Attorney General. Hamilton's opinion was for the power, while Randolph's and Jefferson's were both against it. Mr. Jefferson, in his letter dated February 15, 1791, after giving his opinion decidedly against the constitutionality of that bill, closed with the paragraph which I now read, quote, It must be admitted, however, that unless the President's mind, on a view of everything which is argued for and against this bill, is tolerably clear that it is unauthorized by the Constitution, if the pro and the con hang so even as to balance his judgment, a just respect for the wisdom of the legislature 
would naturally decide the balance in favor of their opinion. It is chiefly for cases where they are clearly misled by error, ambition, or interest, that the Constitution has placed a check in the negative of the President. End quote. General Taylor's opinion, as expressed in his Allison letter, is, as I now read, quote, The power given by the veto is a high conservative power, but, in my opinion, should never be exercised, except in cases of clear violation of the Constitution, or manifest haste and want of consideration by Congress. End quote. It is here seen that, in Mr. Jefferson's opinion, if, on the constitutionality of any given bill, the President doubts, he is not to veto it, as a gentleman from Kentucky would have him do it, but is to defer to Congress and approve it. And if we compare the opinions of Jefferson and Taylor, as expressed in these paragraphs, we shall find them more exactly alike than we can often find any two expressions having any literal difference. None but interested fault-finders can discover any substantial variation. But gentlemen on the other side are unanimously agreed that General Taylor has no other principle. They are in utter darkness as to his opinions on any of the questions of policy which occupy the public attention. But is there any doubt as to what he will do on the prominent question if elected? Not the least. It is not possible to know what he will or would do in every imaginable case, because many questions have passed away, and others doubtless will arise, which none of us have yet thought of. But on the prominent questions of currency, tariff, internal improvements, and will not proviso, General Taylor's course is at least as well defined as is General Cass's. Why, in their eagerness to get at General Taylor, several Democratic members here have desired to know whether, in case of his election, a bankrupt law is to be established. Can they tell us General Cass's opinion on this question? Some member answered, he is against it. Aye, how do you know he is? There is nothing about it in the platform, nor elsewhere, that I have seen. If the gentleman knows anything which I do not, he can show it. But to return, General Taylor, in his Allison letter, says, quote, Upon the subject of the tariff, the currency, the improvement of our great highways, rivers, lakes, and harbors, the will of the people, as expressed through their representatives in Congress, ought to be respected and carried out by the executive. End quote. Now, this is the whole matter in substance, is this. The people say to General Taylor, quote, If you are elected, shall we have a national bank? He answers, Your will, gentlemen, not mine. What about the tariff? Say yourselves. Shall our rivers and harbors be improved? Just as you please. If you desire a bank, an alteration of the tariff, internal improvements, any or all, I will not hinder you. If you do not desire them, I will not attempt to force them on you. Send up your members of Congress from the various districts, with opinions according to your own. And if they are for these measures, or any of them, I shall have nothing to oppose. If they are not for them, I shall not, by any appliances whatever, attempt to dragoon them into their adoption. End quote. Now, can there be any difficulty in understanding this? To you, Democrats, it may not seem like principle, 
but surely you cannot fail to perceive the position plain enough. The distinction between it and the position of your candidate is broad and obvious, and I admit you have a clear right to show it is wrong, if you can, but you have no right to pretend you cannot see it at all. We see it, and to us it appears like principle, and the best sort of principle at that, the principle of allowing the people to do as they please with their own business. My friend from Indiana, Mr. C. B. Smith, has aptly asked, quote, Are you willing to trust the people? End quote. Some of you answered substantially, quote, We are willing to trust the people, but the President is as much the representative of the people as Congress. End quote. In a certain sense, and to a certain extent, he is the representative of the people. He is elected by them, as well as Congress is. But can he, in the nature of things, know the wants of the people, as well as three hundred other men coming from all the various localities of the nation? If so, where is the propriety of having a Congress? That the Constitution gives the President a negative on legislation, all know, but that this negative should be so combined with platforms and other appliances as to enable him, and in fact, almost compel him, to take the whole of legislation into his own hands, is what we object to, is what General Taylor objects to, and is what constitutes the broad distinction between you and us. To thus transfer legislation is clearly to take it from those who cannot understand, with minuteness, the interests of the people, and give it to one who does not and cannot so well understand it. I understand your idea, that if a presidential candidate avow his opinion upon a given question, or rather upon all questions, and the people, with full knowledge of this, elect him, they thereby distinctly approve all those opinions. This, though plausible, is the most pernicious deception. By means of it, measures are adopted or rejected contrary to the wishes of the whole of one party, and often nearly half of the other. The process is this. Three, four, or half a dozen questions are prominent at a given time. The party selects its candidate, and he takes his position on each of these questions. On all but one, his positions have already been endorsed at former elections, and his party fully committed to them. But that one is new, and a large portion of them are against it. But what are they to do? The whole are strung together, and they must take all or reject all. They cannot take what they like and leave the rest. What they are already committed to being the majority, they shut their eyes and gulp the whole. Next election, still another is introduced in the same way. If we run our eyes along the line of the past, we shall see that almost, if not quite, all the articles of the present democratic creed have been at first forced upon the party in this very way. And just now, and just so, opposition to internal improvements is to be established if General Cass shall be elected. Almost half the Democrats here are for improvements, but they will vote for Cass, and, if he succeeds, their votes will have aided in closing the doors against improvements. Now, this is a process which we think is wrong. We prefer a candidate who, like General Taylor, will allow the people to have their own way, regardless of his private opinion and I should think the internal improvement Democrats, at least, ought to prefer such a candidate. He would force nothing on them which they don't want, and he would allow them to have improvements which their own candidate, if elected, 
will not. Mr. Speaker, I have said General Taylor's position is as well defined as that of General Cass. In saying this, I admit I do not certainly know what he would do on the Wilmot Proviso. I am a northern man, or rather a western free state man, with a constituency I believe to be, and with personal feelings, I know to be, against the extension of slavery. As such, and with what information I have, I hope and believe General Taylor, if elected, would not veto the proviso, but I do not know it. Yet, if I knew he would, I still would vote for him. I should do so, because in my judgment, his election alone can defeat General Cass, and because, should slavery thereby go into the territory we now have, just so much will certainly happen by the election of Cass, and, in addition, a course of policy leading to new wars, new acquisitions of territory, and still farther extensions of slavery. One of the two is to be president, which is preferable. But there is as much doubt of Cass on improvements as there is of Taylor on the proviso. I have no doubt myself of General Cass on this question, but I know the Democrats differ among themselves as to his position. My internal improvement colleague, Mr. Wentworth, stated on this floor the other day that he was satisfied Cass was for improvements, because he had voted for all the bills that he, Mr. W., had. So far, so good. But Mr. Polk vetoed some of these very bills. The Baltimore Convention passed a set of resolutions, among other things, approving these vetoes, and Cass declares, in his letter accepting the nomination, that he has carefully read these resolutions, and that he adheres to them as firmly as he approves them cordially. In other words, General Cass voted for the bills, and thinks the President did right to veto them, and his friends here are amiable enough to consider him as being on one side or the other, just as one or the other may correspond with their own respective inclinations. My colleague admits that the platform declares against the constitutionality of a general system of improvement, and that General Cass endorses the platform, but he still thinks General Cass is in favor of some sort of improvements. Well, what are they? As he is against general objects, those he is for must be particular and local. Now, this is taking the subject precisely by the wrong end. Particularity. Expending the money of the whole people for an object which will benefit only a portion of them is the greatest real objection to improvements that has been so held by General Jackson, Mr. Polk, and all others, I believe, till now. But now, behold, the objects most general, nearest free from this objection, are to be rejected, while those most liable to it are to be embraced. To return, I cannot help believing that General Cass, when he wrote his letter of acceptance, well understood. He was to be claimed by the advocates of both sides of this question, and that he then closed the door against all further expressions of opinion, purposely to retain the benefits of that double position. His subsequent equivocation at Cleveland, to my mind, proves such as to have been the case. One word more, and I shall have done with this branch of the subject. You Democrats and your candidate, in the main, are in favor of laying down in advance a platform, a set of party positions, as a unit, and then of enforcing the people, by every sort of appliance, to ratify them, however unpalatable some of them may be, 
we and our candidate are in favor of making presidential elections and the legislation of the country distinct matters so that the people can elect whom they please and afterward legislate just as they please without any hindrance save only so much as may guard against infractions of the constitution undue haste and want of consideration the difference between us is clear as noonday that we are right we cannot doubt we hold the true republican position and leaving the people's business in their hands we cannot be wrong we are willing and even anxious to go to the people on this issue but i suppose i cannot reasonably hope to convince you that we have any principles the most i can expect is to assure you that we think we have and are quite contented with them the other day one of the gentlemen from georgia mr iverson an eloquent man and a man of learning so far as i can judge not being learned myself came down upon us astonishingly he spoke in what the baltimore american calls the scathing and withering style at the end of his second severe flash i was struck blind and found myself feeling with my fingers for an assurance of my continued physical existence a little of the bone was left and i gradually revived he eulogized mr clay in high and beautiful terms and then declared that we had deserted all our principles and had turned henry clay out like an old horse to root this is terribly severe it cannot be answered by argument at least i cannot so answer it i merely wish to ask the gentleman if the whigs are the only party he can think of who sometimes turn old horses out to root is not a certain martin van buren an old horse which your own party have turned out to root and is he not rooting a little to your discomfort about now but in not nominating mr clay we deserted our principles you say ah in what tell us ye men of principles what principle we violated we say you did violate principle in discarding van buren and we can tell you how you violated the primary the cardinal the one great living principle of all democratic representative government the principle that the representative is bound to carry out the known will of his constituents a large majority of the baltimore convention of eighteen forty four were by their constituents instructed to procure van buren's nomination if they could in violation in utter glaring contempt of this you rejected him rejected him as the gentleman from new york mr birdsall the other day expressly admitted for availability that same general availability which you charge upon us and daily chew over here as something exceedingly odious and unprincipled but the gentleman from georgia mr iverson gave us a second speech yesterday all well considered and put down in writing in which van buren was scathed and withered a few for his present position and movements i cannot remember the gentleman's precise language but i do remember he put van buren down down till he got him where he was finally to stink and rot mr speaker it is no business or inclination of mine to defend martin van buren in the war of extermination now waging between him and his old admirers i say the devil take the hindmost and the foremost but there is no mistaking the origin of the breach and if the curse of stinking and rotting is to fall on the first and greatest violators of principle in the matter i disinterestedly suggest that the gentleman from georgia 
and his present co-workers are bound to take it upon themselves. While I have General Cass in hand, I wish to say a word about his political principles. As a specimen, I take the record of his progress on the Wilmot Proviso. In the Washington Union of March 2, 1847, there is a report of the speech of General Cass, made the day before in the Senate, on the Wilmot Proviso, during the delivery of which Mr. Miller of New Jersey is reported to have interrupted him as follows, to wit, quote, Mr. Miller expressed his great surprise at the change in the sentiments of the senator from Michigan, who had been regarded as the great champion of freedom in the Northwest, of which he was a distinguished ornament. Last year, the senator from Michigan was understood to be decidedly in favor of the Wilmot Proviso, and as no reason had been stated for the change, he, Mr. Miller, could not refrain from the expression of his extreme surprise. End quote. To this, General Cass is reported to have replied as follows, to wit, quote, Mr. Cass said that the course of the senator from New Jersey was most extraordinary. Last year he, Mr. Cass, should have voted for the proposition had it come up, but circumstances had altogether changed. The Honorable Senator then read several passages from the remarks as given, above which he had committed to writing in order to refute such a charge as that of the senator from New Jersey. End quote. In the remarks about committed to writing is one numbered four as follows, to wit, quote, Fourth, legislation would now be wholly imperative, because no territory hereafter to be acquired can be governed without an act of Congress, providing for its government. And such an act, on its passage, would open the whole subject and leave the Congress called on to pass it free to exercise its own discretion, entirely uncontrolled by any declaration found in the statute book. End quote. In Niles Register, volume LXX111, page 293, there is a letter of General Cass to A.O.P. Nicholson of Nashville, Tennessee, dated December 24, 1847, from which the following are correct extracts. Quote, the Wilmot Proviso has been before the country some time. It has been repeatedly discussed in Congress and by the public press. I am strongly impressed with the opinion that a great change has been going on in the public mind upon this subject. In my own as well as others, and the doubts are resolving themselves into convictions, that the principle it involves should be kept out of the national legislature and left with the people of the Confederacy in their respective local governments. Briefly, then, I am opposed to the exercise of any jurisdiction by Congress over this matter, and I am in favor of leaving the people of any territory, which may be hereafter acquired, the right to regulate it themselves, under the general principles of the Constitution, because, one, I do not see in the Constitution any grant of the requisite power to Congress, and I am not disposed to extend a doubtful precedent beyond its necessity the establishment of territorial governments when needed, leaving to the inhabitants all the rights compatible with the relations they bear to the Confederation. End quote. These extracts show that in 1846, General Cass was for the proviso at once, that, in March 1847, he was still for it, but not just then, and that in December 1847, he was against it altogether. This is a true index to the whole man, 
when the question was raised in 1846, he was in a blustering hurry to take ground for it. He sought to be in advance, and to avoid the uninteresting position of a mere follower. But soon he began to see glimpses of the great democratic oxgad waving in his face, and to hear indistinctly a voice saying, Back, back, sir, back a little. He shakes his head, and bats his eyes, and blunders, back to his position of March 1847. But still the gad waves, and the voice grows more distinct and sharper still. Back, sir, back, I say, further back. And back he goes, to the position of December 1847, at which the gad is still, and the voice soothingly says, So, stand still at that. Have no fears, gentlemen, of your candidate. He exactly suits you and we congratulate you upon it. However much you may be distressed about our candidate, you have all cause to be contented and happy with your own. If elected, he may not maintain all, or even any, of his positions previously taken, but he will be sure to do whatever the party exigency, for the time being, may require. And that is precisely what you want. He and Van Buren are the same manner of men, and, like Van Buren, he will never desert you till you first desert him. Note, after referring at some length to extra charges of General Cass upon the Treasury, Mr. Lincoln continued, But I have introduced General Cass's accounts here chiefly to show the wonderful physical capacities of the man. They show that he not only did the labor of several men at the same time, but that he often did it at several places, many hundred miles apart, at the same time. And in eating, too, his capacities are shown to be quite as wonderful. From October 1821 to May 1822, he ate ten rations a day in Michigan, ten rations a day here in Washington, and nearly five dollars worth a day besides, partly on the road between the two places. And then there is an important discovery in his example, the art of being paid for what one eats, instead of having to pay for it. Hereafter, if any nice young man shall owe a bill, which he cannot pay in any other way, he can just board it out. Mr. Speaker, we have all heard of the animal standing in doubt between two stacks of hay, and starving to death. The like of that would never happen to General Cass. Place the stacks a thousand miles apart, he would stand stock still, midway between them, and eat them both at once, and the green grass along the line would be apt to suffer some, too, at the same time. By all means, make him president, gentlemen. He will feed you bounteously, if, if, there is any left after he shall have helped himself. But as General Taylor is, par excellence, the hero of the Mexican War, and as you Democrats say we Whigs have always opposed the war, you think it must be very awkward and embarrassing for us to go for General Taylor. The declaration that we must have always opposed the war is true or false, accordingly as one may understand the term opposing the war. If to say the war was unnecessarily and unconstitutionally commenced by the President by opposing the war, then the Whigs have very generally opposed it. Whenever they have spoken at all, they have said this, and they have said it on what has appeared good reason to them. The marching an army into the midst of a peaceful Mexican settlement, frightening the inhabitants away, leaving their growing crops and other property to destruction, to you may appear a perfectly amiable, peaceful, unprovoking procedure, but it does not appear so to us. 
so to call such an act to us appears no other than a naked impudent absurdity and we speak of it accordingly but if when the war had begun and had become the cause of the country the giving of our money and our blood in common with yours was support of the war then it is not true that we have always opposed the war with few individual exceptions you have constantly had our votes here for all the necessary supplies and more than this you have had the services the blood and the lives of our political brethren in every trial and on every field the beardless boy and the mature man the humble and the distinguished you have had them through suffering and death by disease and in battle they have endured and fought and fallen with you clay and webster each gave a son never to be returned from the state of my own residence besides other worthy but less known whig names we sent marshall morrison baker and hardin they all fought and one fell and in the fall of that one we lost our best whig man nor were the whigs few in number or laggard in the day of danger and that fearful bloody breathless struggle at buena vista for each man's hard task was to beat back five foes or die himself of the five high officers who perished four were whigs in speaking of this i mean no odious comparison between the lion-hearted whigs and the democrats who fought there on other occasions and among the lower officers and privates on that occasion i doubt not the proportion was different i wish to do justice to all i think of all those brave men as americans in whose proud fame as an american i too have a share many of them whigs and democrats are my constituents and personal friends and i thank them more than thank them one and all for the high imperishable honor they have conferred on our common state but the distinction between the cause of the president in beginning the war and the cause of the country after it was begun is a distinction which you cannot perceive to you the president and the country seem to be all one you are interested to see no distinction between them and i venture to suggest that possibly your interest blinds you a little we see the distinction as we think clearly enough and our friends who have fought in the war have no difficulty in seeing it also but those who have fallen would say were they alive and here of course we can never know but with those who have returned there is no difficulty colonel haskell and major gaines members here both fought in the war and one of them underwent extraordinary perils and hardships still they like all other weeks here vote on the record that the war was unnecessarily and unconstitutionally commenced by the president and even general taylor himself the noblest roman of them all has declared that as a citizen and particularly as a soldier it is sufficient for him to know that his country is at war with a foreign nation to do all in his power to bring it to a speedy and honorable termination by the most vigorous and energetic operations without inquiring about its justice or anything else connected with it mr speaker let our democratic friends be comforted with the assurance that we are content with our position content with our company and content with our candidate and that although they in their generous sympathy think we ought to be miserable we really are not and that they may dismiss the great anxiety they have on our account footnote the following passage has generally been omitted from the speech as published in the lives of lincoln the reason for the omission is quite obvious 
End of footnote. Quote, but the gentleman from Georgia further says, We have deserted all our principles, and taken shelter under General Taylor's military coat-tail, and he seems to think this is exceedingly degrading. Well, as his faith is, so be it unto him. But can he remember no other military coat-tail, under which a certain other party have been sheltering for near a quarter of a century? Has he no acquaintance with the ample military coat-tail of General Jackson? Does he not know that his own party have run the last five presidential races under that coat-tail, and that they are now running the six under the same cover? Yes, sir, that coat-tail was used, not only for General Jackson himself, but has been clung to with the grip of death by every Democratic candidate since. You have never ventured, and dare not now venture, from under it. Your campaign papers have constantly been old hickories, with rude likenesses of the old general upon them, hickory poles and hickory brooms, your never-ending emblems. Mr. Polk himself was young hickory, little hickory, or something so. Even now your campaign paper here is proclaiming that Cass and Butler are one of the hickory stripe. No, sir, you dare not give it up. Like a horde of hungry ticks, you have stuck to the tail of the hermitage lion to the end of his life, and you are still sticking to it, and drawing a loathsome sustenance from it, after he is dead. A fellow once advertised that he had made a discovery by which he could make a new man out of an old one, and have enough of the stuff left to make a little yellow dog. To such a discovery has General Jackson's popularity been to you. You not only twice made president of him out of it, but you have enough of the stuff left to make presidents of several comparatively small men since, and it is your chief reliance now to make still another. Mr. Speaker, old horses and military coat-tails, or tales of any sort, are not figures of speech such as I would be the first to introduce into discussions here, but, as the gentleman from Georgia has thought fit to introduce them, he and you are welcome to all you have made, or can make, by them. If you have any more old horses, trot them out. Any more tails, just cock them and come at us. I repeat, I would not introduce this mode of discussion here, but I wish gentlemen on the other side to understand that the use of degrading figures is a game at which they may find themselves unable to take all the winnings. We give it up. Aye, you give it up, and, well may, but for a very different reason from that which you would have us understand. The point, the power to hurt, of all figures, consists in the truthfulness of their application. In understanding this, you may well give it up. There are weapons which hit you, but miss us. But in my hurry, I was very near closing on the subject of military tales, before I was done with it. There is one entire article of the sort I have not discussed yet. I mean the military tale you Democrats are now engaged in, dovetailing onto the great Michigander. Yes, sir. All his biographers, and they are legion, have him in hand, tying him to a military tail, like so many mischievous boys tying a dog to a bladder of beans. True, the material is very limited, but they are at it might and main. He invaded Canada without resistance, and he outvaded it without pursuit. As he did both under orders, I suppose there was to him neither credit nor discredit but they are made to constitute a large part of the tale. He was not at Hull's surrender, but he was close by. He was volunteer aid to General Harrison on the day of the Battle of the Thames, and as you said in 1840, 
Harrison was picking wart berries two miles off while the battle was fought. I suppose it is a just conclusion with you to say Cass was aiding Harrison to pick wart berries. This is about all, except the mooted question of the broken sword. Some authors say he broke it, some say he threw it away, and some others, who ought to know, say nothing about it. Perhaps it would be a fair historical compromise to say, if he did not break it, he did not do anything else with it. By the way, Mr. Speaker, did you know I am a military hero? Yes, sir. In the days of the Black Hawk War, I fought, bled, and came away. Speaking of General Cass's career reminds me of my own. I was not at Stillman's defeat, but I was about as near it as Cass was to Hull's surrender. And like him, I saw the place very soon afterwards. It is quite certain I did not break my sword, for I had none to break, but I bent my musket pretty badly on one occasion. If Cass broke his sword, the idea is, he broke it in desperation. I bent the musket by accident. General Cass went in advance of me, picking wart berries. I guess I surpassed him in charges upon the wild onions. If you saw any live fighting Indians, it was more than I did, but I had a good many bloody struggles with the mosquitoes, and... Although I never fainted from loss of blood, I can truly say I was often very hungry. Mr. Speaker, if ever I should conclude to doff whatever our Democratic friends may suppose there is of black cockade federalism about me, and thereupon they shall take me up as their candidate for the presidency, I protest they shall not make fun of me, and as they have of General Cass, by attempting to write me into a military hero. End quote. Congress adjourned on the 14th of August, but Mr. Lincoln went up to New England and made various campaign speeches before he returned home. They were not preserved and were probably of little importance. Soon after his return to Washington, to take his seat at the second session of the 30th Congress, he received a letter from his father, which astonished and perhaps amused him. His reply intimates grave doubts concerning the veracity of his correspondent. Washington, December 24, 1848. My dear father, your letter of the 7th was received night before last. I very cheerfully send you the $20, which some you say is necessary to save your land from sale. It is singular that you should have forgotten a judgment against you, and it is more singular that the plaintiff should have let you forget it so long, particularly as I suppose you always had property enough to satisfy a judgment of that amount. Before you pay it, it would be well to be sure you have not paid, or at least that you cannot prove you have paid it. Give my love to mother and all the connections. Affectionately, your son, A. Lincoln. The second session was a quiet one. Mr. Lincoln did nothing to attract public attention in any marked degree. He attended diligently and unobtrusively to the ordinary duties of his office, and voted generally with the Whig majority. One Mr. Gott, however, of New York, offered a resolution looking to the abolition of the slave trade in the District of Columbia, and Mr. Lincoln was one of only three or four northern Whigs who voted to lay the resolution on the table. At another time, however, Mr. Lincoln proposed a substitute for the Gott resolution, providing for gradual and compensated emancipation, with the consent of the people of the district, to be ascertained at a general election. This measure he evidently abandoned, and it died a natural death among the rubbish of unfinished business. His record on the Wilmot Proviso has been thoroughly exposed, 
both by himself and Mr. Douglas, and in the presidential campaign by his friends and foes. He said himself that he voted for it about forty-two times. It is not likely that he had counted the votes when he made the statement, but spoke according to the best of his knowledge and belief. The following letters are printed, not because they illustrate the author's character more than a thousand others would, but because they exhibit one of the many perplexities of congressional life. Springfield, April 25, 1849 Dear Thompson, A tirade is still kept up against me here for recommending T.R. King. This morning it is openly avowed that my supposed influence in Washington shall be broken down generally, and King's prospects defeated in particular. Now, what have I done in this matter? I have done it at the request of you and some other friends in Tazewell, and I therefore ask you to either admit it as wrong, or come forward and sustain me. If the truth will permit, I propose that you sustain me in the following manner. Copy the enclosed scrap in your own handwriting, and get everybody, not three or four, but three or four hundred, to sign it, and then send it to me. Also, have six, eight, or ten of our best-known Whig friends there to write me individual letters, stating the truth in this matter as they understand it. Don't neglect or delay in the matter. I understand information of an indictment having been found against him about three years ago for gaming, or keeping a gaming house, has been sent to the department. I shall try to take care of it at the department till your action can be had and forwarded on. Yours as ever, A. Lincoln. Washington, June 5, 1849. Dear William, your two letters were received last night. I have a great many letters to write, and so cannot write very long ones. There must be some mistake about Walter Davis saying I promised him the post office. I did not so promise him. I did tell him that, if the distribution of the offices should fall into my hands, he should have something. And, if I shall be convinced he has said any more than this, I shall be disappointed. I said this much to him, because, as I understand, he is of good character, is one of the young men, is of the mechanics, and always faithful, and never troublesome. A Whig, and is poor, with the support of a widow mother thrown almost exclusively on him by the death of his brother. If these are wrong reasons, then I have been wrong. But I have certainly not been selfish in it, because in my greatest need of friends, he was against me and for Baker. Yours as ever, A. Lincoln. P.S. Let the above be confidential. End of chapter 12. Recording by Greg Giordano. Newport Ritchie, Florida.